This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with your revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartso, CEO of Ambition Data. Every other week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. If you are ready to accelerate, then let's go. Welcome, everyone. Today's show is about loyalty program tactics to help you accelerate your business's COVID recovery. And to help me discuss this topic is Len Laguno. Len is the founder of Kairos Insights, which is a company that uses actuarial theory to predict redemption costs and customer lifetime value. And that helps you improve loyalty programs. Len, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I imagine that most people don't really understand what an actuary is. So when you tell us a little bit about your background, could you also help us understand what an actuary is? Yeah, for sure. I'm an actuary by training, and most people don't know what it is, as you pointed out. The stereotype is we predict when you're going to die, which is a very, very morbid thing, of course, right? But super important if you're trying to price a life insurance policy or value a pension liability. Fundamentally, if you want to think about what actuaries do, we use data and professional judgment to make predictions over long horizons. And then we use those predictions to inform better business decisions. So that's kind of what actuaries do in general. I'd say 99% of actuaries work in the insurance industry. Um, As you pointed out, we do not. We work with loyalty programs. And so when I say loyalty programs, think of big frequent flyer programs, hotel loyalty programs, online travel agency loyalty programs, credit card loyalty programs. I mean, you name it. Every single industry has some sort of program that either is issuing points or miles or, or some type of currency to their members whenever they buy stuff in hopes of them keep coming back. So those are our customers. It's a bit of a strange place for an actuary to be working, but it turns out that all loyalty programs have two actuarial problems that they need to solve. So the first one is these loyalty programs are issuing points today, but those points are not going to get redeemed for years into the future. So they don't actually know the costs of those points that they're issuing right now. So how do you go about making smart business decisions today when you don't know the cost of your points? Fundamentally, that's a long-term prediction problem. And so it's, it's an actuarial problem. So that's the first problem. The second problem that loyalty programs have is predicting customer lifetime value. Loyalty is a long game. It's all about improving retention and having that retention compound period after period after period after period. And so if you want to quantify the value that the loyalty program is creating and quantify it for the CFO, it's really a matter of trying to put that compounding retention and the effect of that into dollars and cents. And so to do that, you got to be able to predict customer lifetime value. It's really, really critical. And so customer lifetime value or CLV becomes a really important metric to be able to prove that the loyalty program is actually not a cost center, which is a view that's held by a lot of people. In fact, loyalty programs can generate a tremendous amount of value. And when you think about what customer lifetime value is, it's, again, just trying to predict over a long horizon what that profit stream is going to look like. So it also is an actuarial problem. So that's kind of how actuaries fit into the whole mix. And I've been working with uh, loyalty programs for a little over a decade now. And I kind of fell in love with this space because there's just so much innovation, so much room for innovation. You know, unlike insurance, where there's like a really ingrained status quo, how things have been done for decades and decades and decades, there's zero status quo with respect to the application of actuarial science to customer analytics. It's a new field, right? So there's a lot of room for us to be creative, a lot of room for us to innovate and contribute in meaningful ways. 
So yeah, to date, I've mostly been focused on with my customers, the finance side of the, of the house. So what that amounts to is really predicting redemption costs to help them manage the program liability. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about exactly what that is and uh, do the financial reporting and booking of those liabilities, but also then predicting customer lifetime value to help them understand what are they getting in return for this massive liability they have on the balance sheet. So that's been a big part of what we do. But what I'm really excited about kind of thinking going forward from here is what we're doing in the finance cell is fantastic. It's great work. But what gets really interesting is when you start thinking about the intersection of finance and marketing. I think that there's something really, really interesting there. CLV doesn't have to be just a metric for the finance org. I think it could add a lot of value for the folks sitting in marketing. And I think that's a huge opportunity. Yeah. Let's take this from a marketer's perspective where a marketer doesn't typically speak actuarial language. And I want to set up my loyalty program and I'm putting all this program, all these details together in order to help me understand how to get my customers to return when they return and sign up for my loyalty program and maybe they spend or maybe they you know, take actions that I want them to do, isn't that a good thing? Why would I think about the liability behind a loyalty program? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And maybe we could dive into this liability first and sort of describe and give some context around, around what that is. So Alton, I'm sure you belong to all kinds of loyalty programs. You probably redeemed points and miles for some free stuff at some point in time. I'm sure all your listeners have as well. The question is, who's paying for all that free stuff? Somebody is at the end of the day, and it's the loyalty program. So you can think of the points that a loyalty program issues to their members as basically like an IOU. And so every point that they're issuing out is just one more IOU to add to the stack. And the accounting standards basically say, hey, hey, you got to account for that. You're making this promise. And so you got to basically put a liability on your balance sheet for the sum of all of those IOUs. And what a lot of people don't realize is these liabilities are massive for really big programs. How massive? Yeah. If we go down the list, American Airlines, they're like in the $8 billion range. Delta is in the $6.7 billion. United, $5 billion. Marriott's close to $5 billion. American Express is over $8 billion. So really meaningful numbers. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot of money. And well, these are exceptional programs. They're the world's largest loyalty programs, massive footprints. They're selling tons of points. So like these are definitely on the extreme end. But even for smaller programs, it's not uncommon to see liabilities in the tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. At the end of the day, these redemptions are expensive. It's a big expense. And so when you have this sort of meaningful financial item on your balance sheet, you kind of run into this financial reporting and compliance issue. Basically, you got to convince your auditors that the liability is accurate. Uh, and that can be very difficult to do without the right training um, to be able to really walk an auditor through the underlying assumptions and why they're correct and how those assumptions take you to the liability on the balance sheet. And when you say that they're accurate, you mean that your predictions of the redemption are accurate? Correct. Yeah. So in the case of American Airlines at $8 billion, you know, the auditor is going to say, well, how did you get there? How do we know that that number is reasonable? So you got to be able to produce the actuarial exhibits to back that up. Typically, the way that that works is like the auditor, whatever the big four it is, they'll grab one of their actuaries, in-house actuaries, and they'll start analyzing the liability and looking at it and saying, does this all jive? Does it make sense? This just reminds me of like a butterfly flaps its wings in Mexico and you have to predict a tornado off the coast of New York. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Fortunately, actuarial theory, it's helpful. It lends itself well to being able to solve this and you can produce the exhibits to really make the argument and show that the liability is reasonable at the end of the day. So there is some framework here to work with. That's one of the reasons why people should care about the liability, right? Is there are real financial reporting compliance constraints and challenges that you're going to need to solve for. 
I would say the bigger issue at play, though, is that at the end of the day, the person running the loyalty program has to make business decisions. And it's very difficult to make smart business decisions today if you don't know what those costs are, if you don't know how much the points that you're issuing today are going to eventually cost you. And if you get that wrong, you could be making awful business decisions today that will eventually catch up to you. You could be unknowingly accumulating a financial burden that will eventually come due. Uh, and when that does... A snowball. Right. It could be pretty detrimental to the business. Could lead to things like program devaluations, which in turn leads to an awful customer experience, terrible PR, and frankly, just destroyed loyalty at the end of the day. So kind of defeats the whole purpose of the loyalty program to begin with. So is that why we see, I think it was Marriott that devalued their points recently, or maybe it was one of the big companies that went through this devaluation where suddenly 5,000 points wouldn't get you as much as you had previously purchased. So that's why we see these devaluations come along once in a while is because these companies are carrying this huge liability from the loyalty program and they have to have a way to pass it through the books. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Because of how a lot of companies look at it, you know, you've got this big, gigantic, glaring liability on your balance sheet. And so it's easy to kind of just focus on costs and think, hey, let's cost minimize, cost minimize, cost minimize. But that's not always the right choice. And I mean, like understanding redemption costs is good and all, but the truth is that's not good enough. No good business decision has ever been made by just looking at costs alone. You've really got to look at that. Cost cutting. You got to look at that cost benefit trade-off and figure out, okay, well, is the cost that I'm incurring worth it? If so, then great, let's continue. And I think that's an area where a lot of loyalty programs don't have a lot of insight today. At least that's been my experience, is really being able to credibly quantify what does the benefit that you're getting look like? And the way you do it, it's our old friend, customer lifetime value. And I know you love the metric. I also love the metric. And that's really the metric that's going to bring transparency to that sort of cost benefit trade-off. And that's really what we advocate for when we're working with our customers is, hey, like when they come to me and say, hey, what's the right level of breakage? You know, where breakage is the percentage of points that are just not ever going to get redeemed. I say, no, 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 it doesn't matter. What really you want to be focusing on is customer lifetime value. You want to be growing customer lifetime value. That's the real metric that you should be focusing on. But I'd say on the whole, the industry isn't quite there yet. They're really just focusing. A lot of it is maybe it's in silos. There might be some folks that are definitely thinking about value maximization. But on the finance side of the silo, you've got this glaring liability. There is, I think, a tendency to focus on costs and and view the loyalty program as more of a cost center than a value generator. And I think that's incorrect. Yeah. And does it seem like it's apples and oranges when you introduce the CLV side versus the redemption cost? Is it hard for people to make that intellectual leap that redemption cost might be the wrong way to measure a loyalty program? You know, I think conceptually people are like, when you say customer lifetime value, particularly people in finance, they're like, yeah, I get that. That, That's a good way to think about it, right? But I think it's more of a practical challenge. They have to quantify the costs for financial reporting purposes. So like it's always upfront, it's there, but you don't have to quantify customer lifetime value. In fact, you can't put the future value of your customers on your balance sheet. It's just not allowed. So you're kind of in this situation where you've got the cost glaring at you, but you don't necessarily have that value, that benefit, the customer lifetime value piece, like staring at you as often as the cost. And I think that needs to change. One of the best practices we advocate for is like, let's just never show the liability without showing customer lifetime value or the sum of customer lifetime value across all your members, which we call member equity, similar to customer equity. 
So I think being able to show both of those things transforms the discussion from loyalty as a cost to uh, point more as an investment in the members that delivers a benefit. And I think that's where, where we need to go. So it doesn't really change the reporting. So it doesn't really change how the reporting gets, you know, the reporting is the reporting. It's what Wall Street expects. But when it comes to making smart business decisions, it gives people a broader tool set to work with when they have CLV and the redemption cost side by side so that they're not just sitting there saying cost, cost, cost. Exactly. I think that's right. Yep. I think it's bang on. Okay. Let's look at the recent COVID situation and how that has impacted how companies are managing this liability, especially I imagine in the travel space, anything that was projected forward suddenly has to be reprojected. And I'm also hearing that some companies are doing multiple projections, trying to figure out what is actually going to be the future. How are you seeing companies relate to COVID and the way that they should be thinking about their loyalty program? Yeah. So let's start maybe with the liability and how companies are managing that. So I would say on the whole, unfortunately, loyalty programs aren't like the best at predicting redemption costs. And I think one of the big reasons for that is, one, it's just difficult to do that. The nature of the problems you got to predict over a very long horizon, like member behavior, redemption behavior, a long horizon. This is not particularly easy. Like 30 years or what is a long horizon? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've done an analysis where I've seen points earned 30 years ago now getting redeemed, which is, there's not a lot, but it's like there's a long tail there. Does that incentivize companies to expire them so that they can just kind of take them off the books too? Yeah. Companies want to expire them to be able to take them off the books and make things a little bit cleaner. We're kind of seeing a bit of a reversal now where it kind of comes and goes. Now we're kind of seeing a bit of a reversal where people are like, now let's make the expiration rules a little bit less. Let's relax them a little bit. Maybe even let's get rid of them entirely. So it kind of comes in waves, but that's definitely part of it. But yeah, generally speaking, it's a difficult problem. And frankly, it's just not the exciting or sexy part of loyalty programs. Like people running loyalty programs, they want to think about customer engagement, customer experience, building relationships, emotional ties, like all of these things, which are absolutely the right things to be thinking about. And so I don't blame them for not wanting to really focus and spend a lot of time predicting redemption costs. But unfortunately, it's still, still, it's boring, but it's an important component of the business model as well. So what we end up seeing often is, you know, it's somebody with zero actuarial training is trying to cobble together an Excel spreadsheet to try to manage a hundred million dollar or billion dollar liability. And often it's just going to be very difficult for them to kind of get it right. And I would argue not really reasonable to expect that they would without the right training and expertise. So that's kind of been a challenge for a lot of loyalty programs, even pre-COVID. And I think one of the challenging things is the scary part is a lot of programs don't even realize that they're not predicting redemption costs well because they don't have somebody like really diving into the model and tearing it apart with that has the appropriate experience and expertise. So they're not really picking up on the signals that, hey, this may not necessarily be accurate or reasonable. And I think that's kind of a challenge just from the get-go. And then now COVID comes in and blows everything else up on top of that and makes it even more difficult. So now we're in the situation where even the best of models are like not going to do a really great job, right? <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and so we kind of got to, no model is going to do well. You're in the situation where it's inevitable. You got to set assumptions. And what it comes down to is just trying to set the smartest assumptions possible. That's frankly the, the challenge. And a really good practical way to do this is to recognize that not all members are created equal. They're all going to be affected in different ways by the impact of the pandemic. And so this is where you basically have to set different assumptions for different groups of members. And this is, again, where CLV comes back into play and is really, really helpful. Customer lifetime value fundamentally is it's a tool that allows you to predict future behavior from members. And so it's a tool that allows you to kind of segment your members out into, let's just say, 10 groups where each group has a very distinct behavior. And then you can start setting different assumptions for each segment. 
And some segments are going to be easier than others to set assumptions for. So usually on the extremes, it's a bit easier to set assumptions. Like highly engaged members, they're probably still going to redeem their points. It's going to be a little bit delayed. Whereas on the other end, really unengaged members are probably just going to expire all of their points. So it's really the middle. Or maybe find a way to gift them. Yeah. Because of the uncertainty, are you also updating the models more frequently than you might have in the past? Yeah. You have to basically like set your assumptions and then monitor them pretty frequently because the world we're living in right now is so fluid and dynamic. Like you're not going to get your assumptions right. So every month that goes by, you're getting more information and learning more. So you got to tweak those assumptions on an ongoing basis. Are you correlating them directly to the cases or deaths? Or like, I imagine there's probably a sense of as cases go up, there's a certain, I guess it depends on the industry, but if it were the travel industry, then I would immediately be thinking that as cases go up, maybe my redemptions go down down. But if my business is e-commerce, maybe as cases go up, my redemptions go up. It varies. You got to take your professional judgment right into play to try to figure out like what assumptions do I want to set. Part of it too is you want to have stability in your estimates because particularly when, when it comes to financial reporting, you want to be jerking the numbers around a lot from period to period to period. If there's a reasonable set of assumptions to make that suggests, hey, over the long horizons, things are going to kind of play out in this fashion, there's a good reason to be able to set your assumptions that way. So it's better to have a straight line and then some under over to determine, okay, well, you can justify the under over based on this factor, as opposed to moving the slope of the line over and over again. Yeah. So you'd be a little bit cautious and kind of really jerking it around over time, kind of waiting for more information to emerge over time. Yeah. Okay. So we think the models are obviously wrong now because we're in a pandemic and we know we have to make some more assumptions about the models. When we make assumptions about different segments of the population, is it important to group them into as many buckets as possible, a small number of buckets as possible? How do you think about grouping the people to properly reflect CLV? Yeah. So when you think about the customer lifetime value, the models should be at the individual member level. Um, you absolutely want them to be there. But when it comes to sort of managing underlying assumptions for financial reporting and the liability, you kind of got like, you can't set assumptions for each individual member, right? The human versus the AI. We're not completely AI driven yet. <laughs> right. So we roll that up and we can usually as a number that like people are comfortable with a nice round number. So we'll work with like 10, maybe 15, depending, right? But that sort of scale and then set assumptions for each individual segment separately. Overall, what ends up happening is by setting assumptions at the segment level, again, some are easy to set assumptions for, others are less so, but that reduces the overall uncertainty of the assumption setting process because you are able to take advantage of some are easier to set than others. So less uncertainty compared to if you were to just set one blanket assumption over the entire population. So that's really, really favorable. And then the other benefit of this is when you set it at a segment level, it becomes way easier to articulate the logic behind your assumptions to, say, stakeholders or, or auditors. And that's a critical, critical step. I understand. Okay, so we talked about the liability side. Let's talk about the, let's flip over to the driving recovery, driving value side. How do you think loyalty programs can be used to drive recovery? Yeah, so I think loyalty programs are really an incredible tool to help add momentum to the recovery when we really in earnest like start seeing the recovery really, really happening. The situation here with most companies is that basically revenues drop to almost nothing, but we still have overhead and expenses. So all that boils down to is there's a serious cash crunch for a lot of companies. The nice thing about loyalty programs is they have really favorable cash flow implications, particularly in the current environment. Whenever a member earns a point, there's no cash outflow that's happening with that earned point. And in fact, you might actually get some cash inflow if you're actually selling the points. 
the, the cash outflow actually only happens at the time of redemption, uh, which could be years into the future when hopefully all this pandemic's done and the cash flow constraints are removed. So that suggests that loyalty programs are a really, really great tool for companies to engage with their members because they can find ways to get their members to earn points now. They're engaging with their members, they're staying top of mind, and they're not further exacerbating their cash flow problem. Well, I'm smiling because I'm also thinking that this is mutually beneficial to the customer who may be worried about their own personal cash flow and that they might be able to enjoy more benefits by spending a smaller amount and having points to redeem in the future when they might have less or they might not have enough now and they could use points that they've accrued in the past. So in either case, the points can be uh, grease in the wheels, let's call it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, right? And another reason why these points are super helpful to really accelerate the recovery when you start getting momentum in that direction, right? Because if you're encouraging members to earn points now, when the recovery really gets some momentum, they've got more points in their account than they would otherwise have. And that's a really good incentive mechanism to get them come back and spend money. So I think that's a great point. But I think CLV comes back into play here as well. Because if we do this, we get points in members' accounts, and then we start really seeing the recovery happening. CLV could be a great tool to be able to like prioritize how you're going to then spend your marketing dollars. And I'll give you two examples of how it can be useful. So first is you can use CLV models to identify pent-up demand. So, you know, pent up demand, the way we define that is basically saying, okay, before the pandemic happened, I could make use my CLV models to make a prediction for how much somebody was going to spend. And then I can then compare that to how much they actually spent through the pandemic. And that delta is a good proxy for pent up demand. So being able to then focus your marketing resources to try and, and your time and energy to try to engage that set of members that has really large pent up demand is probably a really good thing. You'll probably get a really good ROI by, by focusing your energy there. So that's a really good example of how you can use CLV. And another example here is being able to use CLV models to identify which members really value your points, where the points really do change behavior. For these members, it could be really, really useful to offer like rich point multiplier, earn point multiplier offers um, to drive behavior. And the beauty of that, again, coming back to the sort of the cash flow thing is when you offer earn point multipliers, the customer is still paying full freight for whatever they're buying, but they're getting like a perceived discount because they're getting extra points. But there's no cash outflow because of that perceived discount. Not yet, not until the points are redeemed. So you're still getting maximum cash coming in at the time of sale. When you position that in contrast to discounts, when you give a discount, somebody gets like a discount on the price right away. And so there's less cash coming in right away. Yeah, I'm not a fan of discounts. And in fact, it's a topic I've been thinking about a lot because I've seen things like 85% off sales that I've never seen before that just makes me horrified of what they're doing to the customer base, what they're teaching the customers to think about. You offer that kind of discount and I'll wait again until you offer me another 85%, like a training ground. But coming back to what you said about points, there is a school of thought in customer lifetime value that your highest value customers don't necessarily need points. Maybe they want something that is more emotional, more special, a special floor they go to, a special person that helps them, a concierge, whatever the experience is. Is that also something you think about when you're looking at your CLV splits and how to use those points? Oh, for sure. So when you think about CLV, I think there's two steps to using, right? Is, is okay, CLV helps you like segment and identify the members. So you can like pull out those high value folks. But then there's still another problem of saying, okay, what's the 
best way to engage these people? Like, what do they really want? And that's a separate question altogether. CLP helps inform that because now you know how many dollars are at stake, how much you might want to invest in a certain member or whatever. But it doesn't necessarily answer like, give them points. It doesn't suggest that. I think you're right. You got to cater to what they want and their wants and needs are. And when you think about loyalty, the points, the points are probably going to be the most effective as a motivator for people that are maybe in the middle of the spectrum. That's how I always think about it. Yeah, you're going to see, we call it uplift. It's a metric that we use, which tries to look at the derivative of CLV to points. So you could say, okay, how does CLV change with each additional point that a person has? And you'll see a larger derivative there for the middle ground folks, but a pretty low derivative for the people at the high end there, because I mean, they're already engaged. There's not much more motivation you can give them. They already have a ton of points. So yeah. Right. They're not going to act. But I mean, when you say something like that, it reminds me that the loyalty program is not a panacea. This is not something that we're saying in order to recover from COVID, you need a good loyalty program. We're just saying that this is part of the mix of teaching customers how to relate to your company, rewarding them appropriately without killing your balance sheet. Correct. Oh, for sure. Yeah. When we approach our customers, we don't say, hey, of all the universe of things to do, the loyalty program is the right thing to do. We're really saying, hey, you're investing billions of dollars in this program, or maybe not billions, but for some programs, yeah, billions into this program. Let's just make sure you're getting the most out of it. But there's definitely still all kinds of other things you can do for sure. But I especially like the idea of a loyalty program creating pent-up demand. I think that's a unique feature. And the idea that I'm accruing points and and pushing those purchases to something in the future, that I don't know about you, but whenever I go to cash in my loyalty program for whether it's travel or whether it's clothing for kids or whatever, I always end up buying more than the loyalty program provides for. So there's this push in revenue that the company is getting, not just by locking, not just by creating the points that allow you to sense pent up demand, but by also giving them a little bit more spending that they can expect in the future as they bring people back through to use something that they've been given. Because we all hate to be given something for free and then not use it. No, for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's right. There's definitely a lot of lift in just getting people to come back and then you can grow share wallet from there. Yeah. So in terms of specific examples where you've seen companies who've been impacted by COVID or who've used this really well, do you have a case study or two that you want to share? Yeah. So I can give a couple examples of how these actuarial insights have been useful for helping loyalty programs make business decisions. So we kind of touched on a little bit earlier around the expiration rules. A lot of companies now are either pausing expirations, um, thinking about relaxing expiration rules, or maybe even eliminating expiration rules altogether. And so a lot of companies will come to us and say, okay, well, question number one, how's that going to impact my liability? Really good question to ask. It probably will increase your liability because if you, let's just say you get rid of expiration rules, it's reasonable to expect you'll see more redemption. So your liability is probably going to increase, which has all kinds of ramifications as it flows through the financial statement and whatnot. So great question to ask. It's also going to change the cost of the points you're issuing today. So it's going to change a really important assumption in a lot of your business decisions today. And so that's obviously like important to be aware of. But again, these are all cost-related questions. Understanding them is good and all, but it's not good enough. And I keep saying it, no good business decisions ever been made by just looking at costs, right? And so you got to look at that. And I know we can think of a dozen examples there. (laughs) Right. So here comes CLV again, a super important metric if you really want to assess the impact of business decisions for loyalty programs. The question, if you're changing expiration rules is, hey, not how much does my liability increase, but how does CLV change? 
we know redemption cost is going to increase, but if the amount that people are going to spend with us, if they're going to become stickier and come back more frequently, if that offsets the increase in cost, then yeah, it's great. You should do it. It makes a perfect economic sense to make that decision. The way you do that calculation is very fine-tuned to the sensitivity of what you're trying to predict with that formula. Are you also adjusting it for the loyalty program? Like I know time is a factor that we wrestle with all the time in marketing because there's only so much you want to take off the table when you're predicting something like cactus deal ratio. Yeah, for sure. So with loyalty programs, I think the CLV calculation is a little bit different from other industries or other businesses. The one thing it does share is the fact whenever you do CLV, you want to do it at a member level, for sure. You got or a customer level. You got to get it to that granular level. That's where you get the most value. Uh, to your point- Averages will kill you. Averages will kill you, right? So the other point to your point is like the horizon over which you want to predict. For the context of managing liabilities, in the context of managing liabilities and trying to optimize those liabilities, usually like a finite horizon makes a lot of sense, like two or three years, something like that makes a lot of sense. In the context, if you use a CLV in other contexts, like trying to value a company like CBCV is you probably want to look over infinity until the end of time sort of time frame. But in this context, it's much more practical to have a shorter time frame, I think. I just want to call out for listeners, the reference that you made there was to customer-based corporate valuation, which is the Fader, Hardy, uh, there's a set of two papers you can download. I think they're still posted over on the Wharton site or any other number of sites, but it's um, customer-based corporate valuation, and that is a whole different way of using CLV. Yeah, fascinating stuff that Pete Fader and Dan McCarthy are all doing with that. It's super interesting to read everything that they're coming out with. But yeah, in our context... But that's not tactical. Like, we're talking tactical. Yeah, it's a little bit different in our context, what we're trying to do. So what we find is like a more of a finite time frame is helpful. The big difference though, when we talk about CLV in the context of loyalty programs is there's an additional cost you got to take out of the equation, which is redemption cost. So usually with CLV, it's still a profit number for other businesses, right? So you take, it looks something like projection of revenue minus cost of goods sold minus acquisition cost, and you're left with some profit. With loyalty programs, there's another subtraction there, which is the expected future redemption cost. And that's a really, as kind of we've talked about so far, a really material component of the business model. So you can't forget to take that out. So, which kind of means you've got to be able to predict for all the points that a member is going to earn over this horizon, like how many are going to get redeemed and how much is it going to cost you? Or in other words, you can't really do customer lifetime value for loyalty programs unless you're really, really good at predicting redemption costs. So it's all kind of tied together. But if you can do it, it becomes very, very powerful because now CLV really represents like the net picture. Really, it's that cost benefit trade-off that you're measuring there. And that's super important. Well, not just a cost trade-off, it's a way to measure the performance. Exactly. Yeah, it's a way to put a number on it. It's a way to kind of capture that long-term performance. And so you're in a position when once you do that, you can start seeing how points influence long-term profitability. And you can start seeing things like if a member had extra points, yeah, that's going to drive more costs. But if that top line revenue offsets that increase in cost, then you're in great shape. It really puts that into perspective. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I know there's a lot of applications for CLV into marketing. Are there any others that you want to hit on that you think are particularly valuable when it comes to the actuarial point of view or the loyalty perspective? Yeah. So I think we mentioned at the top of the hour here that what's really exciting is thinking about the intersection of finance and marketing. CLV doesn't have to be just for finance. I think that there's a lot of useful ways that it can be used by the marketing folks as well. In my mind, there's kind of like two main ways to think about it. One is improving retention of your current members. And then two is optimizing the acquisition of new members. 
right? So let's maybe dive. Improving the retention of the customers that you want and not losing good customers to another source, as opposed to approving, improving retention of everybody, which I think weights the number unfairly. You hit it on the head, right? Is you basically need to stratify your members and identify who are the people I care about? Who are the people that are really going to move the economic needle? And that's what CLV does. So the benefit of that is twofold. One, you're going to eliminate waste because you're not going to be spending marketing dollars on members that aren't going to move the, the economic needle. So that's going to drive an ROI by itself. And then two, you're focusing more of your resources in the members that will drive the economic needle you're going to get a better ROI because of that as well. Sometimes I feel like it's a little bit of heresy when we talk about not every customer is a customer you want because there's such an ingrained philosophy of more customers, more customers, acquire, 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 convert, 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 that the idea that you wouldn't necessarily want all those customers is, do you run across that? Yeah, oh, for sure. I think when it comes to acquisition, most companies are for sure focused on volume as opposed to quality. And I think, and I don't blame them, right? They don't have the tools readily available to kind of really quantify and focus on quality. It's very difficult to do so. But I think that there's a huge opportunity there to kind of rethink the metrics we're trying to optimize when it comes to acquisition. When I say quality, I'm talking about no surprise here. I'm talking about customer lifetime value. So let's try to optimize the sum of customer lifetime value for all the members we acquired, as opposed to just the sheer number of members that we're acquiring. A simple example is, would I rather acquire a thousand members with a CLV of a dollar for a total of a thousand dollars in value or 500 members with a CLV of $10, right? For $5,000 value, right? Which one do I care about more? From an economic perspective, I would much rather have the latter. And uh, again, CLV allows you to do that. Especially if you're not just from an economic perspective, but I think from a stability of business perspective, because, you know, we've all seen these case studies like Blue Apron where they acquire, 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 and it's basically to get to a big pop on the exit. And it doesn't necessarily support the health of the business as opposed to a Spotify, which looks like a very healthy business. And especially now in a time of COVID, I feel like it's almost criminal for leaders in a company, boards, investors to be pushing companies to overspend for low quality customers that will not allow the business to be healthy and sustainable. If COVID did anything, it's forced us to transform to be, it's forced companies to be more respectful of what has to be sustainable over time, not just spend, spend, spend until there's no spending left, which is exactly what happened to Hertz, right? I mean, they had the private equity, lots of spending, all of a sudden there's no more debt to be had and boom, a great business goes out of business. Oh, I couldn't agree with more. And kind of tying that back again to our favorite customer lifetime value, you know, the, the everything we talked about here helps bring transparency to that. But also the, the CBCV stuff is a great way to really kind of pull that out and say, look, some, some of this stuff doesn't make a lot of economic sense from a long term perspective, right? I know, I know. It makes sense if you want to make a lot of money in venture capital. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's say I'm convinced and I love the idea of looking at my loyalty programs this way. What should I do first, second, third, you know? Where should I start? Yeah. So, you know, the exciting thing I think is every single loyalty program has the data to be able to do everything I described today. Like they're literally sitting on a gold mine of data. So I'd say step number one is assess your comfort level with your ability to predict redemption costs. As I mentioned earlier, most loyalty programs we find aren't doing it well. They aren't very sophisticated and not investing a lot of energy into doing that well. So it's a legitimate question that uh, companies should, loyalty programs should be asking themselves. Are they? What's the implication if you're not? And I think you'll realize that, yeah, there's some pretty detrimental impacts if, if we're not doing that well. So you really should get to the point where you do feel confident that you're doing that well. Once you get that done, step two, build customer lifetime value models, CLV models. 
again, for loyalty programs, got to make sure that it's net of redemption cost. Super, super important. And you can't do that unless you've figured out step one first. You can't get to the net of redemption cost without having really good models to predict redemption cost. Once you get that done, step three is use CLV as a KPI. That's, it's a super important metric, brings a lot of information to the table to really assess cost-benefit trade-offs. It's a great tool to kind of bridge the divide between finance and marketing. So just have it as a KPI to measure performance. And then step four is once it's a KPI, you can start using these CLV models to really optimize outcomes. You can start optimizing retention and you can start optimizing your acquisition strategies. And if you can do that, there's a lot of value to be had. Yeah, then you're home free. That's a great summary, Len. Uh, Now, if people want to reach you, how can they get in touch? What would be the best way? Yeah. So you can reach me at, uh, I'm mostly on LinkedIn. So Len Laguno, um, last name L-L-A-G-U-N-O. I think I'm the only Len Laguno in, in the world. So it's a bit of a unique name, but th- I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn or you can email me at len.laguno at kairosinsights.com. Now you also have an academy program, which actually I get your newsletter. So I thought that was a really cool thing that you launched. Do you want to talk about that program real quick? Yeah, sure. So, you know, there's just not a lot of actuaries working with loyalty programs. And so there's just not a lot of literature or educational content on the internet about how to do the actuarial work for loyalty programs. And so we decided that we would fill that void. So we released uh, something called the Kairos Academy, which is basically just a bunch of free e-courses where there are uh, videos that we put together that talk about all kinds of different things related to the application of actuarial theory to loyalty programs. So if you want to learn more and dive into some more of the details, please, please, please check that out. We put it together for the industry and I hope you find it useful. That's a wonderful feature. I'm so glad you did that because there's just not enough information out there, especially about the angle that you've been talking about today. So thank you for sharing all the tips and insights about helping businesses not just be healthier, but helping them think about their loyalty programs in ways that I'm sure they haven't thought of before. Uh, The mathematical angle is, is it's a killer if you don't know how to get on top of it. And this is such a huge advantage for any business. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. So as always, everything we've discussed will be at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. We'll include the link to your programs and your link to the Kairos website. So everybody can have a chance to get over and see the information that we talked about today. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. See you next time on the Customer Equity Accelerator.